why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it's great to be here. Uh, as Ryan said, my name is Father Bryce Sibley. I'm a priest of the Diocese of Lafayette in Louisiana. I've been serving for the past two weeks, actually three weeks now, uh, over at Notre Dame Seminary, the Theologate, uh, in New Orleans, a professor of moral theology, just started, and for the past 11 years, I've been working with college students at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. I, gonna be, I admit you, this talk was going to be about spiritual direction. I've done a lot of spiritual direction, but as a result of maybe the Holy Spirit, I decided to call an audible a couple of weeks ago and change the topic. And the topic instead is going to be on vocational discernment. And spiritual direction has a part to play in that. We're going to talk about discerning our vocation, particularly vocation to the priesthood or religious life. Uh, I, I, I'm not here to brag um, at all, but uh, really, I'm being honest, over the course of the past 11 years, I have worked with, and, and our ministry has seen about 90 young men and women pursue uh, vocations to the priesthood or the religious life. And there are many who have been ordained uh, or are in some form of vows. So what I want to do is share some of the insights that I've gained over the years about the discernment of a vocation. And as I sort of finish the talk, it's basically all of the insights that I've received. Uh, so we may be here for a little bit of time, I'm trying to put about three different talks into one. Uh, and so I am recording it, and I do have an outline form with the quotes and everything that you'll be able to get as a PDF later on after the talk. I'm going to offer not so much tips about how to discern a vocation, but instead fundamentals, almost prerequisites, things that I have come to believe are necessary for us to understand before we can properly discern our own vocation in life. The first two you'll see are actually sort of distinctions that need to be made. I sort of use this simile in helping people understand why these things are important. Let's say that we're going to sort of say that discerning a vocation is like doing some really complicated math. I don't know, a calculus or a trig equation. And here you are and you're working through it. And you've gotten everything, you say, I got the answer right. And you bring it to the professor and the professor says, well, sorry, you got it wrong. So you go back and you try it again. And you come out with the same answer, and you say, Professor, I did everything right. Got the answer wrong. And he goes, yeah, you did everything right, except this formula right here is wrong. You're using A squared when it should be A cubed or, or whatever. I, don't, I was an English major. I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. <laughs> so you're doing the right process, but you have some fundamentals. You have a formula that's wrong. And what I've found is that a lot of young people in discerning their vocation have some pretty big formulas wrong. And as a result, they don't really properly discern or heed what the Lord is calling them to do. 
And so what I want to do is, is look at these, and I'm going to have seven main points. And I'm going to signpost them as we go, so you can kind of see where we're going. They're all sort of interrelated, uh, but to help us better understand what are the prerequisites, these things, these fundamentals for properly discerning uh, the Lord's will in our life. And again, we have some older people here. Uh, I know y'all discern God's will. We're talking about some big state of life decisions here, and that's why we're giving it to the young people. So hopefully maybe you can learn some things to teach uh, children and grandchildren and other people that you encounter. This is the most important one. And for, like, the UL people here, sorry, you've heard all this about 100 times, so just, inter, you know, be excited that others maybe get to hear it and pay attention. The first and most important one is this, and it's going to come as a shocker. You don't need to discern a vocation to marriage. You should write that down and underline it. You do not need to discern a vocation to marriage. Why? Because everyone is called to marriage. Everyone is called to the vocation of marriage because marriage is a natural vocation. It is a call that is written into our human nature. So we're going to call it a vocation made with a small v. Vocation means a call. It's a calling, but it's written into our human nature. It's written into our very bodies. We may call it the default vocation written into that spousal meaning of the body. If you want to know if you're called to marriage, do you have a male body? Yes, you're called to marriage. Do you have a female body? Yes, you're called to marriage. I'm called to marriage. The Pope is called to marriage. Mother Teresa was called to marriage. Everyone in this room is called to marriage because we are created for a gift as male and female. You see allusions to this in catechism. And if you want to go look at St. Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Theologiae, you look at the church supports, question 31. Article 1, Thomas is clear. Vocation to marriage is a natural vocation. However, the call to the priesthood or to the consecrated life, that could be religious life, uh, consecrated virginity, to be a hermit, a monk, whatever it is, we're going to sort of use this big term, consecrated life, where you belong to the Lord, is a supernatural vocation. A call that comes outside of your human nature. Even though it may build on your human nature because you're called the gift of self, it comes from outside of your human nature. This is what needs to be discerned. This is what needs to be discerned. Whether or not the Lord is calling or inviting me to follow him in a more radical way. There's no need to discern marriage because I said, if you're a male or female, you are called to marriage. You may need to discern who you're supposed to marry, and that's why you go on a few dates. But you don't need to date to know that you're called to marriage. If you're a man or a woman, you are called to marriage. And so what I want to do is I'm going to propose some quotes here that sort of, I was told I was supposed to be somewhat academic in this. Uh, some of the quotes are sort of lengthy, uh, but you'll be able to have them on the PDF. And one is from a theologian uh, who I studied a lot and I greatly respect. He was made a cardinal by John Paul II, but died before he could receive the hat, and Cardinal Ratzinger preached his funeral. His name was Hans Urs von Balthasar, and he wrote a lot of stuff, particularly he wrote a book called The Christian State of Life, 
right, talks about vocation and discernment of vocation. He says this, quote, No sound and balanced Christian will ever say of himself that he chose marriage by virtue of divine election. Election, being chosen. An election comparable to the election and vocation experienced or even only perceived by those called to the priesthood or to the personal following of Christ in religious life. One who chooses marriage simply has not experienced that special election in his soul. He does so, therefore, with the best conscience in the world and without imputing to himself any imperfection. But he does not, for that reason, claim that he is following a way specifically chosen for him by God. He is obeying God's general will for his creatures. Unquote. Marriage is God's general will for us. It is written into our nature. So the person who is genuinely chosen or called to either the priesthood or the religious consecrated life are going to feel both attractions at the same time. The call, the pull to marriage is, is based in our nature. You have hormones. That's why you want to get married. That's, what, that's how we propagate the species. It's something natural. It's something good. You're going to experience both at the same time. So if you were to come up to me and say, Father, I think I'm called to the priesthood, but I don't really, I'm not interested in marriage. I'm going to say you're not called to the priesthood. You've got to be able to renounce the good of marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And so you're going to experience both. And you, that's normal. It's not like people, I think, sometimes come, Father, I'm expecting all of a sudden my desire for marriage or motherhood or sexual encounters to go away. It ain't going to happen. This is going to be the part of the cross of celibacy, of renouncing those desires and the good of marriage. But you're doing it for a greater good. You also can't rely on the strength of the call. Father, I got this really, really strong call, this pull to be a father. Yeah, because you're 22 years old and you got a bunch of hormones rushing through your body. That's why. It's going to happen until you're probably about 50 years old, so get used to it. All right? So you can't decide one or the other. What you have to do in discerning this is I call bracket the natural call to marriage and put it off to the side because it's always going to be there. And discern whether or not the Lord is calling you and this supernatural call to belong to him in the radical way. So to go through the process of discernment and decide, yes or no, is the Lord calling me to belong totally to him? This is something that I sort of reduce things to or help people understand. A call to marriage is a call written into our nature to belong totally to another person. Granted, we all belong to Jesus. But to radically give yourself and belong to another person. A call to the priesthood, religious life, consecrated life, is a call to belong completely to Jesus. Belong to the Lord. You give yourself to him in a radical way. And to be consecrated means to be set apart. Set apart as something holy. And so we've got to discern, is the Lord calling me to this? I'm not going to get into too many things about how we discern that. Remember, I'm talking about fundamentals, but this is the most important formula. Even if you follow the call and you say, yes, the Lord is calling me to the priesthood, the religious life. As I said, 
the desire for marriage and intimacy will not go away. I tell men this all the time. When are you going to start struggling with lust and the desire for sex and passion? And the priest told me this one time. Three days after you're dead. It's always going to be there. That's how it works. Women, not so much. But that's a whole different story. That's the reality. This is always going to be there. It's going to be part of the cross. And we have to be able to move forward. So uh, to make another point that I sort of alluded to, if you are really serious about discerning a vocation to the priest or religious life, you can't date. You can't do it. That's going to be cross signals. You've got to choose one or the other. If you want to date, go date. If you want to discern, discern. You're going to still be attracted, but you've got to put those other things to the side or else you're not going to be able to focus. And so I've seen it. A lot of the times a person who fills their call but doesn't really want to pursue it, it goes date. Well, guess what? That call may not go away. You may feel it continuously. Some people the Lord's not going to let go. That was my experience. He kept hounding me until I said yes. If you want to see more about this, I have an article that I wrote about 10 years ago. You can find it online on Homiletic and Pastoral Review called Discerning Marriage as a Natural Vocation. You can find it online. I also want to add something here, another distinction that's not worth a whole point, but it's important. There is a difference between a vocation as a call to a certain state of life either a married person or a consecrated person or priest or religious, and a career, okay? So vocation is a call to a state of life, marriage, celibate priesthood, or consecrated. It is a state of life that lasts for your lifetime. And that's why it involves vows or promises to God, to the church, to another person. That's why we really technically shouldn't say that, oh, I'm called to serve and focus. No, you're probably not. Maybe the Lord wants you and he's desiring you, but there's a temptation to say the call to focus, which is temporary, or the call to go on a mission trip, it gets confused because you start thinking, well, religious life is the same thing. It's only temporary. No, that's not how it works. The Lord may inspire you to that, but it's not the same thing. I also are going to say that there's probably not a quote-unquote vocation to the single life. You could be a single person, but you've got to take some form of a vow. There are no floaters in Christianity. I'm a single, I'm going to float until I find something I want to do. No, it doesn't work that way. Maybe indeed there'll be someone who comes along that you want to marry, but until then, you've got to make a decision. I'm going to live this celibate life to serve the Lord until I know what God wants me to do. And of course, there are many ways to live this out. To live out the celibate life, the consecrated life in the world. A lot of the times we say, see, the priesthood of religious life. Well, there's also things called secular institutes. There's consecrated virginity. You could be a hermit. Societies of apostolic life. Read John Paul II's Vita Consecrata to see all of the different ways that this call to belong to Jesus can be lived out. So, state of life is a vocation, marriage, priesthood, consecrated life. A doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a candlestick maker, whatever, these are careers. And they are normally lived out within the state of life and marriage. 
know, lived out so that you can make money and provide for yourself and for your family. The decision to pursue a career is really not a vocation. People are kind of, Father, I'm trying to see what God wants me to do for a career. Like he's going to call you the same way he called you the priesthood. Maybe he does that for some people, but normally it is based on a prudential decision. Your likes and your dislikes, your gifts and your talents, what you think is going to be good for making money for your family. You know, not to, to be bad or you know, denigrate any kind of type of work or job, but God's not necessarily calling you to be a ditch digger. All right? He's not. He's not necessarily calling you to be a teacher or a doctor, even though those, because of the good work they did, were often considered vocations, but they're careers. And so pray about it, Lord, what do you want me to do? If there's no inspiration, he's always going to say, hey, here are your talents. You know the parable of the talents? Go spend them. He doesn't tell them how to spend the money. He says, just bring me back a return. And that's what I think is important when it comes to discerning the career. He is to look at our gifts and our talents and come and make a decision. Um, even then, so when it comes to that, our career could be based on our talents and gifts, not necessarily our vocation. You know, I don't have the gifts or the talents to be a priest. Neither did St. Peter. Neither did any of the apostles. So he may, you may have some of the gifts. You're a good speaker. You're a good administrator. But it doesn't mean that you have to have those to have the supernatural vocation. All right, that's the first one. Marriage is a natural vocation. That's probably the most complicated one we're going to get into. Second, and this is going to have a couple of distinctions, the call to priesthood, call to priesthood, the ministerial priesthood, is really not the same as a call to consecrated life, particularly when it comes to women and how they're called. What do I mean by that? We've got to make a sort of very important distinction first. There's the call to priesthood, and that is a personal call, we generally believe. If you look at scripture, Jesus goes to the apostles, you follow me. Paul, you follow me. It's a very, very personal call, often experienced as a command. You always have a choice, but the Lord's saying, I need you to go. Drop what you're doing, aniyama, let's go. We'll get some things to do. Jesus calls the apostles. The other state of life, consecrated life, whatever, is focused on the evangelical councils. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. You sort of saw in that quote from Bob Balthazar, you will see when I pointed out what I mean by this. This call to evangelical perfection through poverty, chastity, and obedience, to belong to Christ, to follow him in a more radical way, some have considered this a universal call, not necessarily personal or specific to the individual. Why do we say that? When Jesus talks about the evangelical councils, he says, if you want to be perfect, sell what you have and come follow me. He says it to everyone. If you want to be perfect, if you want to follow me in a radical way, and, and dedicate yourself to me, the way to do it is through poverty, chastity, and obedience. It doesn't mean you can't do it in marriage, but you're not going to be able to do it in the same way as you would in this state of perfection 
of following Christ in this more radical way. And so this invitation, this is not so much a call, but an invitation open to everyone. Hey, if you want to be perfect, sell what you have and come follow Jesus. It's an invitation. And so invitation is the word that I tend to prefer to use, particularly with young women, and you will see why in a second. So what happens is, is the priesthood is primarily a call to serve the church, to live out the sacraments. Well, the, the state of perfection of the evangelical councils is to follow Christ in a more radical way and be more conformed to him. Something about one's own personal sanctification. It doesn't mean that the priest is not called to be perfect. We are. We're supposed to give of ourselves, even though we don't take a vow of poverty. We take promises. But that's more of a, a, sir, a call to serve the church sacramentally. And so the other one is about like a radical following of Jesus through poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so people were coming to me, and a young man, Father, I don't know. Do I want to be a Dominican, or do I want to be a Dawson priest? My question is, what are you more interested or attracted in? Sacraments, hearing confession, preaching, or that radical following of Jesus in poverty, chastity, and obedience, and, follow, and living in community? If they say that, then I said, go join the Dominicans. Go be, the, go be a Jesuit. Because that is not exactly the same call. So, so let me go back to Balthazar. He, he makes this distinction clear, and it's in the same book. The priesthood is primarily an ecclesiastical function. Hence, the call to it will have something official about it, and will have, to a certain extent, the character of a command. It is closer to the categorical follow me that Christ spoke to his apostles, thereby summoning them from their secular way of life, their career, in order to give them a new positional it is like a map, a muster roll in which each one is called by name and must step forward. Like in the military. You, come on, let's go. The call of the evangelical life, poverty, chastity, and obedience, is somewhat different because it is a call to personal discipleship and therefore much more in need of a freely given personal response. It is more like an invitation. Hey, you want to follow me in a more radical way? I invite you to poverty, chastity, and obedience in order to do that. And so that's what I say. Do you think Christ is, call, is inviting you to follow him in this more radical way? The truth is, maybe he is. And people decide they want to follow. I remember I talked to a Dominican sister. I said, sister, tell me your vocation story. She said, it's pretty easy reading the gospel, and Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, sell what you have and come follow me. I wanted to be perfect, so I saw what I had, and I became a Dominican. <laughs> no long process. But what happened is she's still there because she took that step forward, and the Lord gave her the grace to live it out. But sometimes we make it the invitation, and we can't say yes. So the rich young man, we know the story. If you want to be perfect, sell what you have. But he walked away because he had many possessions. Did Jesus condemn him, get mad at him? No. He looked on him with love. 
Who knows, maybe that rich young man came back a few months or a few years later and followed him. But Jesus didn't force him. He let him choose. Jesus is going to force no one. He's going to let us choose. And if we choose and say yes, and then we follow, if we're called, he's going to give us the grace to do it, particularly when it comes to celibacy. You know, Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. Some are born eunuchs, and some are called or made eunuchs. But they've got to be given the grace to be able to live it out. Okay, so that's that sort of initial distinction between sort of priesthood and consecrated life or the life of the councils. But here's the question. In the Gospels, we know that Jesus calls the apostles. How many women does Jesus call personally in the Gospels? Who wants to guess? Zero. None. None. Now, he may have. We don't have evidence of it in Scripture. He may have called. I have no idea. But women do follow him. Why? Because women tend to follow Jesus much more naturally than men do. Men need to be told to go to church. Women, in general, are going to be more attracted. They're more disposed to religion. Even St. Therese notices that. And so there's this attraction. Now, there could be a personal call, or it could be experienced as a personal call. Therese experienced hers as a personal call. So did Mother Teresa. We look at Mary, though. What about the mother of God? Jesus didn't call her, but there was something there. But the angel didn't come in and say, Mary, pack your bags. You're the mother of God. Let's go. <laughs> no. It was an invitation. This is what you were called to do. And she had to give her fiat. She had to give her yes. So her freedom is engaged. And so I think in a great degree for women, it is the same way. Rarely is it going to be a command. You, woman, come follow me. Why? Because if we look at whatever manifestation of female consecrated life we have, from consecrated virginity to religious life to whatever, it is almost always, if not always, structured in the language of marriage. It is a spousal call. Priesthood is not necessarily a spousal call. There may be some dimension of that. But hey, you are going to become a bride of Christ. And if this is true, as one sister explained it to me, the man doesn't say, woman, you're going to marry me. Let's go. No. He makes a proposal. And for women, Jesus makes a proposal. Will you marry me? Because that call for the woman is fundamentally spousal. Again, so if it's an invitation, you can refuse. Why would you want to refuse? I really don't know. But you can. The Lord is not going to force you to marry him. And in human life, the church looks at it. If there is force or fear, it's not a valid marriage. The Lord is not going to command you to marry him because he is such a great respecter of our freedom. My favorite parable is the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. The father doesn't force the older son to come into the house. He invites him, he pleads with him, but he goes back in the house. He leaves him out there. He's got to make the decision himself to come in. We can refuse. 
in the same way we can refuse a call or an invitation. That's the second point, all right? Invitation versus call and what that come means. We're going to see it a little bit more. Third, this is the shortest one. You cannot discern a vocation alone, an isolation away from others in a community. Over the years, people kind of made father, and people, you know, I discerned a vocation, uh, the priesthood, but I realized I wasn't called. Well, how did you discern it? Oh, I prayed about it on a retreat one weekend, and no, I'm not called. Did you talk to a spiritual director? Did you work through it? Oh, no, no, no. God, God told me. Very convenient. I've never met someone who prayed about it once or twice, and God did call them. Always conveniently, he's not calling them. And so there was, there was nobody accompanying them. There was no one helping them. And so when I say, well, maybe you're not called, but if you're serious, you're going to have to start back from square one because you can't do it alone. Because a call or invitation by its very nature, implies a community and implies a relationship. Discernment of a call or an invitation, I'm going to use the word call, but know that there can be some distinctions there, is always done in communion with others. Why? Because it is very, very easy to deceive yourself, usually deceive yourself that God is not calling you. Even more, though, a call to the priesthood of the religious life is a call within the church to serve the church, to be part of the church. And so it needs the evaluation of the church. And you see this very evidentially when it comes particularly to priesthood. My ordination, Father's ordination, the questions are asked. We've asked the people of God, is this person suitable candidate? It's got to be the input of others. But most importantly, your bishop has to say yes, or if you're a religious sister, your superior has to say yes. It's a two-way street. You may think you're called to the Dominicans, but the Dominicans can say, ah, no, we're not interested. It can go both ways. That is so important. We can't proclaim or ordain ourselves. There must be someone there to receive. But more importantly, we need someone there to walk us through it. The best example of this comes from the Old Testament. Remember Eli and Samuel. Samuel's sleeping. He hears the voice of the Lord. Follow him. He doesn't know what it is. So he goes to Eli, the old priest. And Eli says, I just go back to bed. He goes back to bed. Here's the voice again. Comes back. Eli says, nope, you're just hearing things. And finally, here's the third time, and Eli realizes that it's the Lord calling him. He says, when you hear that voice again, go back and say, here I am, Lord. I have come to do your will. Samuel needs Eli to help him discern. He can't make up his mind without it. It has to be done in communion. Even more we understand this, quite often, gosh, I don't know what percentage I would say, but a very high percentage, the call itself usually is not direct. In the Old Testament, God rarely speaks directly to people. He mediates his voice through the prophets. Even now, God mediates his voice through the successors of the apostles, the bishops. 
And so we look at our vocations, quite often it is encouraged by a priest or a nun or a family member. Someone brings it up and it's like a spark that catches the fire. And so this is something that, that Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, who became Pope Benedict, said in regards to this. He said, every call has it, has in it that human element, the aspect of fraternity, of the feeling of being spoken to by another. If we think of the road we have traveled, each of us knows full well that there was no beam of bright light from God shed directly on us, but that somehow there had been an invitation from someone faithful being carried along by someone. One of the ways I sort of explain this is with a joke. It's the only real joke that I can remember, or at least it's clean enough for me to tell. <laughs> There's the flood coming. There's the man. He says, God, save me from the flood. I know you can do it. A car passes by and says, the flood's coming. Let's go. No, I'm going to wait. God's going to save me. The water gets higher. He's on the second floor. A book comes by. Hey, buddy, flood's coming. You're going to drown. No, God's going to save me. Finally, he's on the roof. And a helicopter comes by, drops down the ladder, and says, Fella, you are going to drown. Oh, God's going to save me. 20 minutes later, he drowns. Gets to heaven, sees Jesus. Jesus, what is the deal? You said if I ask, I will receive. I asked you to save me, and you let me drown. He goes, what are you talking about? I sent a car, a boat, and a helicopter to get you. But what happens is we're waiting for direct intervention. I want God to directly tell me this is what I'm going to do. He's probably not going to do it. He's going to use others, people, circumstances. And that's why we also need to work with a director, someone with experience to accompany us, to see how the Spirit is working in our lives. Particularly if you think the Lord might be calling you, I think it is imperative to find a director that you can work with, who can direct you, but also potentially sort of accompany you through this journey. You want to read more? I wrote an article on this in Homiletic and Pastoral Review called Discernment and Communion. Now, here we're getting to the fun stuff. That's all nice and theoretical, but this is where some of us are going to start moving our seats Getting a little nervous. You want to take a sip of water now? Number four, the discernment process should not be a long, protracted process. The ardor of perpetual discernment. We all know that. If you're discerning a vocation, how long? Five years. No. We've got to make a decision. And you know, who tells us this? St. Thomas Aquinas does. There's no need for a long, drawn-out discernment. Go to your Summa, the second, the second part, question 189, article 10. Whether it is praiseworthy to enter religion without taking counsel of many and previously deliberating for a long time? His answer is, yes, we may take a long time for things that are matters of doubt. But a call to follow Christ and the way of perfection is not a matter of doubt. You don't need to spend five years discerning this. If you feel the call, go, pursue it. And if you're really called, the Lord is going to give you the grace to live it out. If you don't want to take, take Thomas's opinion, 
Take Jesus' opinion for it. When you're sure of the call, drop your nets and follow me. That's why, and again, I'm insistent on this because it means a lot to me. When I felt the call, I was in my junior year of college. I dropped out of college. I had one year left at the end of my junior year and went to the seminary. People thought it was stupid. I said, I'm just pursuing an English degree. I'm either going to go to law school or work at McDonald's. English degree is pointless. Why not drop out early? Oh, Lord, I have to go bury my father. No, let the dead bury their dead. Follow me. Now, there may be some times when we do need to postpone. I understand that. We can't uh, follow immediately. But we've got to be willing to follow when we feel the Lord is calling us. Now, here's a little interesting fact. This is where the squirming is going to start. Something that I found out or I noticed a few years ago. If you look at Focus missionaries, you know, I'm sure you all know Focus, our students here, the Fellowship of Catholic University <laughs> students, so many wonderful young men and women working on college campuses, working with young people. What is the ratio of women to men as Focus missionaries? What's the ratio? Or at least it was two or three years ago. Yeah, it's about three to one. About three to one. Maybe 60, 40, really probably 33% because they're, they're really beating the streets to get the last 6% of guys. <laughs> Trust me, they are. Now, so what I did is I looked at that and then Focus puts out a list of people every year who pursue vocations to the religious life, who start priests of the religious life. What's the ratio of men to women in that? Want to guess? Opposite. Exact opposite. Guys will pursue a vocation three to one more than girls. What is the problem? What is the problem? Because you figure God's not calling three times as many guys to relive to priesthood, but three times as many girls to focus. There's something going on. And, and, and I explained it like this because I got to make it make sense. Nobody get offended. I'm gonna tell you what. <laughs> Young people like to watch videos on YouTube. I like to watch videos on YouTube. If you look at YouTube, how many videos will you see of women shooting bottle rockets out of bodily orifices? <laughs> None. None. But this type of stupid behavior and other type of stupid behavior, there are millions of videos of dudes doing it. Millions of videos doing it. Shooting bottle rockets, tasing each other. Jumping off of third-story buildings into swimming pools. What does this tell us? <laughs> Guys don't think. Women overthink. Particularly college-age women overthink. So when it comes to guys, they, oh, call the priesthood? I'll go. Why not? <laughs> about it that much. Well, sometimes they do. Look at that. The, the, the truth hurts. 
<laughs> Look, I'm not, I'm not trying to give in to gender stereotypes here, but, but I'm just telling you from my own experience. For guys, though, it's more of like a deductive process. We go through like, here are the traits of a guy who make a good priest, or people who are called a priesthood. Well, I read that. Let me give it a shot. <laughs> Women, no. Even though there are traits, I will never lead with that. Women are more inductive. It comes from this interior pull. And so what happens is, women are going to think and pray about whether the Lord is truly calling them, and they're going to do it over every single possibility, possible pitfall, possible hazard, possible inconvenience, and they want a 100% certainty that they're making the right decision before they even put their tittle toe into the water. <laughs> Guys, can I get an amen? Amen. 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 <laughs> Ladies, let's get an amen. amen. Ladies, you're never going to have the type of certainty in a vocation or in anything. Mary didn't have it. Mary didn't say, I'll be the mother of God, but I want you to tell me everything that's going to happen over the course of the next nine months and the next 30 years. No, you're going to have a sword pierce your heart. That's all I'm going to tell you. If Mary's not going to have all the details and have to step out in faith. So do we. We have to trust. And so what happens is, and again, I'm not trying to pick on you all ladies, but, but you get stuck in that head ruminating over every possibility and the fears take over and you lose your peace and you drive yourself crazy and you drive me crazy. <laughs> so my hair is gray. <laughs> I do a lot of work with women, as I used to. And all sorts of anxiety. No, it's not good. Now, of course, this is why women live longer than men. The Darwin Awards, men shoot bottle rockets out of orifices. That's why they die early. Women live a lot longer because they're, they're going to overthink things, but they're going to not do as many stupid things. But what happens is, is that when the woman begins, look, ladies, I've experienced, you like to ruminate over everything, but particularly when it comes to vocation, freaking out, the anxiety, oh my gosh, God's calling me, how do I know? And you sit with that, it, it, like, it gives off the fumes that leads to confusion to all the other women around you who might be discerning a vocation. I'll give you a story. When I first got to Wisdom 11 years ago, there was a group of very pious girls who were discerning. Everybody said, these girls are so great. They're open a religious life. Well, I brought a group of Carmelites in, and they spent a day or two with them, and the vocation directress came in. She wasn't being mean. Carmelites are not mean. Father, you got to cut all these girls loose. What do you mean? He goes, these girls are never going to make a decision. They've been discerning and discerning and discerning and stuck in their heads for three or four years. Cut them loose. And then you prune it back and you're going to see fruit. So I did. It was nice to them, but uh, y'all need to find another spiritual director. Uh, we're not going to worry about that. And all of a sudden, whoop, all these other ones came through. Because what was happening is everybody would go to this group of girls who were discerning, and they would just make them overthink. And so, so much confusion, and we weren't getting anywhere. You want to read more? Search my article. Folks. <laughs> See, I already had most of this talk written. <laughs> Searching for clarity in vocational discernment. Now, sometimes people say, I've quit overthinking. Yes, I'm going to follow the Lord. Some even get accepted 
the seminary or the religious life or the priesthood. Here I'm talking about guys and girls. And all of a sudden, whoop, they get cold feet. They get cold feet and they back away. Now granted, maybe some of them really realize I'm not called or my motives are flawed or they get caught by a curveball, whatever it is. But what happens is it causes them to start getting distracted and second guessing. It's normal for this to happen. I remember when I got, except at the seminary, like seven of my ex-girlfriends, which should be a sign right now, then I shouldn't have gotten married. Seven <laughs> of my ex-girlfriends contacted me and wanted to go hang out. I had seven curveballs thrown at me. No, 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 I'm not gonna do that. That's not so much the problem, is getting cold feet or getting negative, is when you start making excuses. That's the thing. So again, getting cold feet, wanting to go back, wanting to postpone a little bit, whatever. It's, oh no, I'm really uncalled because of this and this and this. And start making excuses why you're not called, that's the problem. And so my rule of thumb is, I understand people are gonna get nervous, but you cry wolf once, I'll allow it. You cry wolf twice, it's over. And so I tell you the story, I, I learned this lesson. When I got there in 2010, there was this wonderful young woman who I knew had a vocation, and she knew it too. She was kind of wild, and she would pursue the vocation, ah, I'm not called. And then she'd disappear, and she'd start partying, and then she'd come back. And she did it like four or five times. And she was driving me nuts. Until finally, she went to the first vows of the religious order she ended up joining, and she comes back, Father, I gotta talk to you. I'm gonna join. And I roll my eyes. I sat out there, and this, we were very good friends at the time, so I could tell her what I told her. I know I'm called. I'm not gonna back out. I'm not gonna give away. I said, if you cry ghost, cry wolf one more time, I'm gonna kick your behind. I am going to. I'm tired of it. Make a decision. Make up your mind. Con pantalones, the same choice of Avalon is. Make a decision. She did. She's taking her first vows, and she's doing great. She's doing great. So what's at the root of this? This hesitancy, this overthinking. This is a whole separate talk. I've actually given a whole retreat on overthinking. <laughs> you can listen to it and overthink about what I said on my retreat on overthinking. So first of all, really, what is it? What, what, is the, what is this desire for certainty? It is a desire for control. If we know all the outcomes, we're in control. But if we don't know what's going to happen, if we've got to step forward, we are not in control. Number two, we want God to micromanage our lives and tell us every little thing. We don't want our dad or mom calling us every day and telling us what to wear and what to eat, but we want God the Father to do that for us. So I have this wonderful quote from Sister Ruth Burroughs. How many know who Sister Ruth is? Sister Ruth. English Carmelite sister, very contemporary, but wonderful stuff. Her book, The Essence of Prayer, is one of the best you'll read. Listen to this quote from her. The trouble is so very few of us really do seek God. She's talking about vocation, but really sort of pursuit of holiness, pursuit of God. We want something for ourselves, and this is why we are anxious to be told the way. We want the path marked out for us, securely walled in, with not a chance of going astray. We are so anxious for this that we cannot afford to listen to the Lord guiding us from within. We want to have the signpost there. We want to be told what to do. We, we, we want the guardrail. If we did listen, 
then we would realize that we were merely going around in circles within the given confines. And that if we would find God, we must venture out into the trackless, unknown wastes. Shelsey uses the analogy of so many people, like they go on vacation, and you're at your condo, and you have your swimming pool there. We want to stay in the swimming pool. We can look out on the fence and over the dunes and see the ocean. We're not going to the ocean, because that's scary. That's vast. We're content with staying in the little, the little swimming pool. Maybe it's one of those little pools that, what do they call them, that they flow you around? It's fun, you move A lazy river. You have your Mai Tai, I'm doing great. <laughs> but to go out into the deep, no. For the Lord calls us all to go out into the deep spiritually and some to follow him in a more radical way. And third, I, I think a lot of it is rooted in perfectionism. I see this all the time. i got to be perfect. Can't make a mistake. But I realized over my experience in working with people that most people really don't struggle with perfectionism, at least most women. They struggle with a fear of failure. They don't want to fail. And so what do all three of these things have in common? They're rooted in fear. Fear of losing control, fear of the unknown, and fear of failure. What are you afraid of? That's the question. If you think that the Lord might be calling you or inviting you, and you're hesitant, what are you afraid of? And so that brings us to the fifth point. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Fear really is the first big thing that really gums up the process of discernment or following. I love Matthew chapter 14. They're out on the boat. This is, this is vocation right here. Out on the boat, Peter sees Jesus walk on the water. What does Peter say? Hey, Lord, if that's really you, call me. I'll come out. Tell me to come out to be with you. And Jesus calls his bluff. Let's go. Come on. And I can imagine Peter at that moment looking at the apostles. Oh, poo. <laughs> Look at his face. What's us? It's all of us, particularly all you young people. Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And Jesus says, all right, I want you to be a priest. I want you to come be a consecrated person. Oh, I <laughs> There must be a ghost. <laughs> Ghosts do come into the play. Wait. Jesus is the ghost. We'll talk about ghosts in a little, a little bit later on. And so we were devout. We want to do the Lord's will, but all of a sudden when the call becomes real and concrete, or when we hear the wind and we look at the water, we're scared. Scared of drowning. Fear of failure. Feel to look like a fool in front of all the other apostles because maybe we are not going to do it right. And so we're putting out our own lives. I see so much fear. Fear of what we talked about there. Fear of failure, losing control of the unknown. We also are fear of loneliness. That's probably the biggest one that I see. Fear of what we're going to have to give up. Of our parents' reactions. Particularly if our parents are nuts. <laughs> Challenges that we're going to face. All kinds of stuff. Particularly, though, loneliness. Also the fear of commitment. Hey, i got to have my options open here. I commit to this. Maybe I can't do this other thing. I commit to the seminary priesthood. I meet this really cute girl. Oh, I don't know. 
I've got to keep my options open. But here's the point. Fear, in whatever manifestation it is, is never, ever a principle of discernment. So people come, Father, I'd like to be a priest, but I just fear that I can't be Sullivan. Not valid. It's fear. Fear never drives discernment. I'm I'm afraid that I don't have good enough grades. Wrong fear. Not going to work. Not going to work. Father, I'm afraid that I won't look good in the habit. (laughs) No. That doesn't work either. (laughs) Jesus never said it would be easy. If you want to follow me, Jesus did not say, go lay on your couch and watch Netflix. He said, pick up your cross and come follow me. And you're going to face persecutions too. But he gives us the grace. And amidst that, we do find blessedness and happiness even amongst the struggle. So when the fear comes, I generally see three reactions. And these are the reactions that people say everyone gives when they're faced with fear. First of all is fight. Fight. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel, we resist it. We get angry with God. Mm. It's like the kid whose parents call him in when they're playing outside. Why do I have to come inside and everyone else gets to stay outside and play? Why do I have to be celibate? Why do I have to wear a habit? Ah. So they fight. Some freeze. A lot freeze. Oh, and then they get stuck in their head and start going in circles. And they're crippled. They can't act. They can't move forward. They can't make a decision. But most, when they first face that fear, the older people will realize that. I'm going to give a little, I'm going to give two different cultural references. One that y'all will get, one these will get. Most of them, when they first get that the fear comes, they get rabid in their blood. They want to run, like Cool Hand Luke. The boy's got a rabbit in his blood. And so they run. So I've seen it. Father, they come to my office, I'm ready to be a, a priest or a nun. And they get fearful, and then that's where the ghost comes. Poop, they ghost. So ghosting is a term when you just, for no reason, disappear from someone's life. <laughs> they know what it is. They've ghosted their boyfriends, they've ghosted their girlfriends, they've ghosted the priest. <laughs> Sometimes when they come back, now they don't just go for vocation, they go for other things. I'll come up and, and do this. Is this an apparition? <laughs> Are you really flesh? <laughs> so they'll start seeing another director. I love that. Oh, Father, she's seeing so-and-so. Okay, well, because that person's not going to make them think about things, but that's fine. <laughs> A lot of times they do come back. That's how it works. Sometimes... La, 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 I am not hearing what you're telling me. They don't want to hear it. That's another way of flight. A lot, of course, is they make excuses. <coughs> I'm going to sum it up for y'all. I'm going to sum this up. And boy, I like the ladies who are going to know this right away, the younger ones. I'm going to sum it up in verse. You're not a voice. You're just a ringing in my ear. <laughs> and if I heard you, which I don't, I'm spoken for, I fear. Everyone I've ever loved is here within these walls. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Oh, now the dudes are getting it. I'm sorry, Secret Siren. 
but I'm blocking out your calls. I've had my adventure. I don't need something new. I'm afraid of what I'm risking if I follow you. Who is that? That's Elsa. I've seen Frozen 1 and Frozen 2. You gotta follow the call into the unknown. Of course, in Frozen 2, she's listening to herself. So she's basically ruminating. But anyhow, ultimately, we have got to step out of the boat. We've got to make the decision. Sometimes we need someone in that boat to go, get out of there, and push. I can be firmer with guys. I mean, I told some of the guys, old people here, something more frank, you know, fellas, grab your testicles and be a man and do it, go! I said, I had a guy just entered the seminary, because I told him that, I could see it <laughs> Driving me nuts! I told guys worse things than that, but we're not gonna... If he does get ordained, it's gonna be a great vocation story. <laughs> And so I love Father Jacques Philippe. For those who, who've ever read him, you should read Father Jacques Philippe. And here, here's a great quote that sums it up. As long as a person who must jump with a parachute does not jump out into the void, he cannot feel that the cords of the parachute will support him because the parachute has not yet had a chance to open. One must first jump, and it is only later that one feels carried. It does not come before. If you want to feel the pull of the parachute, you've got to jump out of the plane. You've got to overcome your fear. You can't expect, oh, this is going to be easy. No. You've got to jump first. You've got to set out on the path. You've got to step out of the boat if you expect yourself to be able to walk on water. You've got to take the first step. Then the Lord is going to come through and guide you. Ratzinger, one of, another great quote. The knowledge of God is a way, is a path. It means discipleship. It is not revealed to an uncommitted, permanently neutral observer, but rather is disclosed in the measure in which one sets out on the way. Let me rephrase that. The knowledge of God's will is a way. You have to set out on the path of pursuing a possible vocation, go out in the unknown, and he'll guide you. And if you're not called, he's not going to just abandon you. He's going to, he's going to put you back. Father Tim and I know plenty of guys who went to the seminary and discerned out, as they say. We used to say they just left. Now they discern out. <laughs> Father, of the guys, the many guys over the years that you know have wanted the seminary and left, how many are homeless and destitute? None. None. The Lord's going to provide for you. You've got to trust that. Like Elsa you have to head out into the unknown. <laughs> All right, we'll keep going. Someone said there was a two-hour talk. It's not going to be a two-hour talk a few weeks ago, but we're going to go. Let's not get any laugh. Number six, tied to this, do not hide yourself. This is a very, very important one. Fear can make us run and hide. That's the main obstacle. But there is another obstacle that I see. Along with fear, it's the biggest one, and that's shame. Not guilt for what you've done, but shame for who you are. As a result of choices that we've made are things that were done to us, particularly abuse, particularly sexual abuse. 
Individuals come to see themselves as unloved or unlovable, deeply wounded. God could never choose me. I'm not good enough. I've made too many mistakes. I see it more in young women. It's in guys too, but it's more visible in young women. And what it does is that shame stops us. We hide. We can't move forward. I think there's a connection why there are fewer guys going to the seminary now because of the shame they're experiencing. They can't move forward. Like Adam and Eve in that second creation story, they cover themselves. They hide themselves from each other and from God. If you hide from God, you're not going to be able to follow his call. You won't be able to say, here I am, if you're hiding in the bushes. Shame cripples us and stops us from acting, not only when it comes to a vocation, but for life in general. We all have a desire to be seen, known, and loved, particularly by God, who is a loving Father, to know ourselves as beloved sons and daughters, because only then can you act confidently. The people that I see who followed know their identity, and they say, I'm going. I know the Lord is not going to lead me into some miserable place. This is the big part of the problem, though. Not just our shame, but the way it impacts our vision of God. We may know that God is a loving Father in our heads, but in our hearts, we don't trust Him. Often because of our past, particularly our relationship with our own father or possible abuse, we see Him maybe as a distant and uninterested individual, a coach, a capricious tyrant, someone who's so exacting, wants us to be perfect. No! He is a loving and merciful Father. He knows you're trying your best, and he only wants what's good for you. Well, why would he give you a snake if you asked for bread or an egg? What's my recommendation here? Face your crap and deal with it. Just the only way to say it. Face your shame and deal with it. Prayer is important. You can have prayer for healing, and I recommend that, but you need to go to therapy or counseling. Particularly that shame is so deeply rooted particularly because of abuse or addiction. You know, particularly if you're struggling with some kind of addiction, get rid of the irritation of sin. All you're doing is pouring gasoline onto the fire. But still, whatever it is that, that you're ashamed of, when it's leading you to hide yourself, you got to bring it to the light. St. Ignatius says that the evil one wants to keep that sin in darkness. So it controls us. Bring it to the light confession, to a therapist, to someone, and then you control it. It's often a gradual process, but it stops controlling you. From my experiencing, facing shame and seeking healing is the scariest, much more than these other types of fear, particularly someone who's been living with a long time. And we see the same reactions. Flight and ghosting mostly. Shame comes, boop, they disappear. It's just too much. It's like knowing you have to have this surgery on this massive spinal tumor, but it's so risky, you'd rather live with it. But then you're gonna be crippled and you can't walk. Fright, as I said, mostly it's just crippled. But then also there's fight. Sometimes when someone, the Lord or another person, makes you face that shame, oh, you get angry. And you'll lash out, seek vengeance, the person who exposes the wound. But I'll tell you, 
and just in general, and I'm not talking about vocations here, I've got enough talks on shame. If you do not deal with it, it will consume and control you. You will go through your life thinking that you're not loved or unlovable, at least to acting out, particularly sexually, drug, alcohol, addiction to kill the pain. Other ways, particularly fond for young men today in the church, they have a lack of ardor in their own lives, so they want to exert ardor outside their lives. It's a very rigid spirituality. It does not really have room for love. Everything is clearly marked because there's often, not all the time, often a lack of ardor in their own hearts. And it can lead to some serious emotional imbalances, particularly if it's not dealt with by the time you're about 30 years old. But once it's fixed, once it's fixed, it's brought to the light, some it's immediate, some it is gradual. What a transformation. I tell you so many stories of young men and women who the shame came out. I, I have a gift for making the shame come out. I've seen it a lot. I've used up many, many boxes of Kleenex in my office over the years. But you expose the wound, the Lord comes in, the divine physician, and all of a sudden, Things change. Oh, maybe I am called. And they have that knowledge. Yeah, even though you're fallen and you've made mistakes and you're not perfect and you come from a crappy background, the Lord loves you unconditionally. Even when you are the worst, he still loves you. There's nothing that can make the Lord not desire to be with you. God not only loves you, but he delights in your presence. When you can come into living that, then you know the Lord delights in our presence. Well, then you're ready to discern a vocation. That's the thing. Until you, if you're living in shame, you just can't do it. Clear the shame out, then let's talk about discernment. And so with that work, it heals and changes ourselves, but also our perception of God. Who God is, we come to see him as a loving father. And yeah, you do it through prayer and through therapy, but it's also done, as I said, through mediation. You old people have heard me quote Jacques Philippe, this quote a zillion times. In fact, I've given a whole retreat on it. We urgently need the mediation of another's eyes to love ourselves and accept ourselves. The eyes may be those of a parent, a friend, a spiritual director, but above all, they are those of God, our Father. The look in his eyes is the purest, truest, tenderest, most loving, and most hope-filled in the world. The way we normally experience the Father's love and gaze is through another person in front of us but it's God loving us through that person. And yet, we may be healed, we may overcome the shame, it comes back and forth every once in a while, but we're still going to remain wounded, weak, imperfect, earthen vessels. But like St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it keeps us humble, and we rely on God's strength and not on our strength. And even through it, you can continue to fall. I didn't see it, but they, they said that the, the episode of The Chosen from a few weeks ago when Mary Magdalene relapsed, the Lord still loved her. He still loves you. That doesn't mean you're still on call just because you made a mistake. Let's get our things straight and let's move forward. And finally, here's the last one. Finally. <laughs> Cookies are not going to eat themselves. Father needs to shut up. <laughs> a vocation is not about you. Many hesitate, seeing because they believe that they will not be fulfilled or happy as a priest or a sister. I'm not even going to really mention here this fundamental assumption that somehow if God calls you, he wants you to be unfulfilled. I'm going to call her to be a nun so she could be miserable. <laughs> Love it. 
He's like the Grinch. <laughs> Listen to Father Jacques Philippe. How many young people, for example, hesitate to give their lives entirely to God because they do not have confidence that God is capable of making them completely happy? They seek to assure their own happiness by themselves and then make themselves sad and unhappy in the process. This is precisely the great victory of the father of lies, Satan, succeeding in putting into the heart of a child of God distrust vis-a-vis -vis his father. Can't trust God that he is going to provide for me. You want evidence of this? I'll be honest. Half of all marriages end in divorce. You think, you think oh, I don't want to be lonely. Could get married. There's so much loneliness in marriage. I don't know the exact figures, but for priests who are ordained or sisters who are in final vows, I would say less than 5% leave, probably. Maybe. Maybe that much. We're consistently the happiest. <laughs> Father would say, Father, when was the last time you were lonely? When was the last time you didn't have someone around? We both said, we wish we had more time to know this. <laughs> <laughs> and I see it. Apparently, young women, y'all like, okay. I don't really go, that's the priest, we're, we're at seek or something, we're at conference. Oh, Father, how are you doing? Then all of a sudden, a religious priest comes, one that's wearing costume. <laughs> <laughs> they forget, we don't even exist. <laughs> we don't even exist. And they're talking, Father, you're so holy, you're in Dominican, whatever. <laughs> and then we're sitting around, oh, let's go have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> then, some religious sister walks by. Oh, everyone focuses on the sister. And then we're like, hey, fellas, you know what it feels like. Let's go. Let's get out of here. <laughs> but why? You're not as attracted to the sister's flowing garments. You know, the sisters are so happy, particularly these young sisters. We love the servidoras. We love the sisters of life. They're so happy. Well, then why do you think you're going to be miserable? <laughs> They have bad days, but you know they're happy. They're a lot happier than Isis and priests. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that. <laughs> the fundamental assumption is wrong. Your vocation is not about your personal fulfillment. God does not call you the priesthood so that you can feel really good about yourself. It's about death to self and service of others. That's what the gospel says. You must die to yourself to live. You're called to serve others, to put others before you. Why is this that we think it's about ourselves? Well, we live in a narcissistic culture, but also a consumeristic attitude. I want to choose what best suits me. I want to choose the vocation that I really like. No. A vocation, particularly to marriage to, you know, some of y'all married there, is, is if you go into marriage thinking it's about yourself and you're going to find fulfillment, you'll be miserable. Oh, Lord. Same thing. A vocation is a call to serve humbly, to die to self, to carry the cross, and lose yourself, to find yourself. Here's a great article that was not written by me. It's by a guy named Benjamin Mann. It's called, Your Vocation is Not About You. I think you should read the whole thing, but this quote sums it up. A vocation, any vocation, is a school of charity and a means of crucifixion. Oh, yeah. I mean, priests, look, I've been a priest 21 years. I've done enough marriage counseling. I'm happy where I am. <laughs> a lot of crucifixion. 
A lot of holy people in marriage, goodness gracious. Your vocation is the means by which your self-serving ego will die in order to be resurrected as the servant and lover of God. This is all that we can expect, but this is everything. The meaning of life, all there really is. My vocation is where I will learn to let go of my questions, carry the cross of my problems, and be mysteriously fulfilled even when I am not happy. We have some choice as to how we will undergo that process. We do not, so long as we abide in the grace of God, get to choose whether we will undergo it. You're going to face the cross in some way, shape, or form. But it's only then that you're going to be happy. In doing so, Christ promises you will gain so much more. The final question is, what is it going to fulfill me? But how can I best die in order that others may live? In conclusion, there are other principles, but we would be here until 10 o'clock. I will share this so you have all the outline and quotes. And if this talk does open up a space in your heart to be open, please listen. Call your vocation director, talk to a friend, call your Dawson priest. And know this too, that responding to a call of being open to pursuing discerning does not mean they are going to ordain you tomorrow or you're going to take your final vows next week. It's at least six years at the minimum. And that is a period of discernment and formation. So the first is decision is, I think I need to seriously discern. I'm going to bracket marriage and start discerning this. And then you may get to the point where you say, I need to get away from the noise of the world and enter a seminary or a process of formation so that I can listen and be formed into what a vocation is. And there's a commitment, but it's not the end. A priest friend of mine who emphasizes for girls, it's postulancy first, where you postulate, you ask questions, you try to figure out what this is all about. I know for girls it's a much bigger decision because you usually have to move away. Guys are going to stay local. But still, it's the same thing. We can't discern in the world. There's too much noise. We've got to be able to pursue forward. This quote sums it up. And it's from a book which I read, which I thought was pretty good. It's by a guy named Luke Burgess. It's called Unrepeatable. It's about how to discern a vocation. I like the book, but I really like this quote. People do not know their vocations by thinking long and hard enough about them, but through taking action, especially acts of love. A vocation is a unique way of giving and receiving love in the world, so there is no other way to fully understand it except in and through love and action. When it comes down to it, I know this sounds really cheesy, but discernment is really a response to a call to love. Knowing how much the Lord loves us and desire to love him and others back. This is the fundamental drive. When someone knows their dignity, knows the Lord's love for them, and they get locked on. It's like the Millennium Falcon and the tractor beam getting sucked into the Death Star. You are going to follow Christ. But not just God, a loved neighbor, desire to save souls, to accompany them, to be with them. And if we love, we're willing to make the sacrifices. The sacrifices that I've made as a priest, particularly the past 11 years and working with college students, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade for the world. I really, really loved what I did. So I'm going to close, close with three quotes. And the reason I'm doing it is because I, I can't give a talk without quoting St. Therese. All right, so I got three quotes from three Theresas. Teresa of Avila, 
Teresa Lucia and Mother Teresa all about this. Mother Teresa, love is giving. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. Jesus loved the world so much, loved you, loved me so much that he gave his life. And he wants us to love as he loved. And so now we have also to give until it hurts. True love is giving and giving until it hurts. I want to make the cross, but if you truly love, it's a joy to give till it hurts. Here's a tribute to St. Therese, even though I can't exactly find where it is. She says, arithmetic is the one science God doesn't know. What does that mean? God is not there counting the numbers. It's superabundance. Love drives it. Not, what, do I, what can I get away with? How, what's the little amount I need to do? There's no measure. It's love. And then finally, Teresa of Avila. The important thing is not to think much, but to love much. And so do that which best stirs you to love. If it's all of the priesthood of religious life, it is a call to love, and you ought to follow. Pray for all of you. Thanks for listening. I, I can't take some. He's been waiting for me to shut up for a while. <laughs> questions and answers.